0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm producer Catherine Hughes. To mark International Women's Day, we're dedicating all seven days next week to examining the challenges and triumphs of women around the world through art, sport, literature and politics. To kick off this special week of programming, we're bringing you an examination of the ways powerful women have been represented in Western art, which was recorded in partnership with Sotheby's as part of their Women Artists campaign. This episode features Mary Beard, Britain's best-known classicist, and Holly Brain, a specialist in modern art and impressionism at Sotheby's. The chair was cultural critic Shahid Abari. To view the accompanying images for this conversation, please visit the link in the podcast description. Join us next week when we'll be discussing a revolution in female sport, hearing from the women writing for freedom in Afghanistan, and concluding by asking the difficult question, who gets to call themselves a feminist? but back to today's episode, let's go to Holly now to hear more.
1: Uh, We are here today as one of the panel talks in a series of panel talks organized as part of Sotheby's Women Artists Campaign at the heart of this campaign is the celebration of historically undervalued female creativity and a chance to explore the underrepresentation of women artists in the commercial art sector and wider today our theme is women and power and who better to talk about that than <laughs> professor mary beard britain's best loved classicist celebrated author and perhaps most famously, my former lecturer. When <laughs> <laughs> I read classics 15 years ago at Cambridge. and here to chair our talk is the incomparable critic and cultural commentator, Shahid Abari. With that, I will pass over to Shahidah.
2: Thank you, Holly. Obviously, this is going to be such a fascinating discussion isn't it, between the two of the, these people. Should we start by trying to understand exactly where the Western tradition of female representation actually begins. And then then perhaps we can discover if there is some sort of continuity or thread that connects those origins with how women are represented today. So Mary, I'm going to invite you to start our conversation. Uh,
3: And I'm going to say something extremely predictable, (laughs) um, which is that I don't think that you can properly understand not just the ways we represent women now but the debates and and contestations and complexities of that unless you go back to the ancient world I think in some ways the building blocks are already established Mm -hmm. there they're invented there in the west and the absolute classic example has to be the most powerful woman in the divine pantheon of the Greek world is Athena patron deity of Athens. Here you see her on the left and her on the splendid pot. On the right, I think in a slightly vulgar way but probably absolutely (laughs) correct Um, it is the the replica of the cult statue of Athena from the Parthenon which is now in Nashville, Tennessee and it's a very, very good reason to visit Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what What stands out for me from these images is that she is represented as a man, essentially. She is a female deity, but here she is in armour, she's helmeted, she has all the accoutrements of maleness. So it's a classic case of the powerful woman being dressed as a bloke. And if by any chance you missed the message. Uh, On the right-hand side, underneath the statue from the Parthenon, underneath is a, you just see a a small bit of relief sculpture. What that showed was Pandora, the the kind of, the, the idea of the first female who messed things up and opened the box and let out trouble into the world. So actually, the real woman is underneath, being the villain. The powerful woman is the man at the top. And I, I, we've never escaped that. I think. Mean, well, we, we look at it now and we think, oh, that's Athena. But she's really shocking, you know, because she's, she's, she's non-binary, basically, yeah. you know, in modern terms.
2: I think we have Medusa next. LAUGHTER
3: Well, you know, we we could spend the whole hour uh, going through classical women, but we can start to add bits to that basic template of female power. And here is female power for the bad. And what ancient, both Greco and Romano art, does is give you two options. Of how to see the transgressive power of woman. And that often clusters around Medusa, the Gorgon with snaky locks, who will turn anybody who looks at her to stone. You see that in then two versions. Uh, one, an early version on the left, where Medusa is literally monstrous. She's telling you, don't look at me, you know, because I will turn you to stone if you do. The other version of seeing her is on the right, and it's this goes again, it runs through all our versions of what a dangerous woman is. A woman is either dangerous because she's horrible, or she's dangerous because she's beautiful and lovely, and she is going to turn you to stone, but she's going to do that through seduction and beauty. And And that kind of opposition between the hag. And the temptress is something that we still play with and was being enjoyed and and played with back in the 6th century BC. So uh, these have gone really, really deep into our (laughs) our (laughs) way of seeing things. Um, And here you can see just how deep they've gone because there is barely a modern female powerful politician who has not herself been represented as Medusa. So on the left there, you've got Benvenuto Cellini's statue from Florence of um, Perseus the hero holding up the decapitated head of the severed head of Medusa. And on the right, you may not be able to see this very clearly, but look carefully. And this is part of Trump's campaign's memorabilia from the Trump election campaign, where the head of Perseus has been replaced by the head of Trump. And the severed head is Hillary. What I think is amazing about that is that I bet, I mean, this was on tote bags, on fridge magnets, on mugs, you know, you name it. It must have been bought by people who would never really have known what the myth of Perseus and Medusa was. But it, somehow the point is kind of embedded you know, in culture, in Western culture, about uh, the, the man triumphing over the monstrous woman. And just for good measure at the bottom, <laughs> uh, you think it's just Clinton um, uh, on the right Um, We have mimicking the Caravaggio on the left, Angela Merkel. (laughs) And even, let me tell you, even Theresa May was written off by the Police Gazette as the Medusa of Maidenhead, which (laughs) is her constituency, that is. So you can see that we're still dealing with those images.
2: Thank you, Mary. We're going to look at two Roman statues next, the Empress Messalina and her husband, the Emperor Claudius. I know Messalina is a controversial figure, isn't she? So (laughs) is the representation of men and women straightforward in this period, or as we suspect, were there debates about how these figures were being represented?
3: Well, I threw this pair of images in just to kind of say, look, these images are being are more complicated from the very beginning. That The ancient world is both, as it were, um, giving us the building blocks, but it's also playing with them. And on the left, um, you have one of the most notorious women in the whole of Roman history, Messalina, uh, the, the woman who is a Medusa in all kinds of ways. She reputed to have challenged the prostitutes of Rome to a competition to see how many men she could sleep with in one night. She's married to the Emperor Claudius, right? Um, And here, what's happening here is that she's being turned into a virtuous mother. In some ways, that kind of the literary tradition about Messalina is being, its sting is being drawn by this perfect version of her with her baby. And meanwhile, just so you don't think that it's that men get off completely scot-free, we've got an attempt to make a really powerful image of the Emperor Claudius, her husband. Men are implicated in the problem here because Whoever did this sculpture of Claudius, making him look a bit like the king of the gods, has succeeded, I think, in doing nothing more than making him look very stupid (laughs) indeed, right? So that kind of, those that repertoire of male power doesn't always come off. And I think that's something, you know, images aren't always successful.
2: Do you think that's deliberate? Is it the, is it the uh, eagle at his, his feet? What is it? I think ridiculous? it's the eagle nibbling his knee. <laughs> yes.
3: <He's> just, uh, <laughs> it's partly saying, I am Jupiter, the king of the <laughs> gods, with my eagle. Yes. But it's also saying, I mean, it looks very silly. Now, you can imagine that classicists go two ways on this. One is, mm, you know, they didn't quite pull it off, did they? The other is, you know, even in the imperial sculpture workshops, the desire to satirise the emperor um, actually won out. Yeah.
2: He does it like he's hoping, holding a soap dish and a loofah. <laughs> <hit him>? <laughs> his,
3: his accessories are a bit <laughs> unfortunate. Yeah, I think yeah. we try not to blame the accessories, but you know, the, there is always—and I think this is where we, you know, women like me, you know, constantly going on about the problems of representing female power. Yeah. You know, we've got to re- remember that in terms of male power. It's, you know, it's not as simple as you might think. And the boundary between power and mad megalomania, yes. which is what we learn about throughout the images of Roman emperors, is a very dodgy one. So I think one of the things we're hoping to kind of look at just occasionally in this session is to see that it's not as if men and the representations of men are completely straightforward. They're also bound up with the problems yeah. of representations of women.
2: I think we're moving on now to modern times with you, Holly. Holly, is there a, a, a recognisable standard trope, as it were, of how women have been portrayed
1: here? Yes, absolutely. And, and I, I think really what we can see here as just one example is really the other side of the coin to what Mary's talking about. Instead of the, for example, Athena and the how one emblemises and codifies power we're considering now the sort of real, and in inverted commas, woman, um, and how she has been portrayed. And this on the screen is a painting by Belgian surrealist artist Jane Graverall. And as you can see, it's the outline of a nude reclining woman. And that as an image, as an icon, as it were, has been represented throughout art history, not just modern art, throughout art history at large, um, by its very nature, a passive pose, um, and bearing in mind that for hundreds of centuries, it has been predominantly male artists who've had almost exclusive access to the creation of images of women up until very, very recently. Um, and what, and we've got a few more slides to get through, but what I want to focus on about this particular painting is how Jane we was seeing this motif now through a female artist's eyes, and she's literally given us a stencil of this motif how she's maybe making us think and flagging ideas about the emptiness of it, the insubstantial nature of it, and how it has been a literal stencil by which male artists have inserted themselves into a legacy of visual representation, but also played with it and exploited it as a means of exploring their own creative ingenuity.
3: Mm. I mean, the fact that you can see through this, feel that she's transparent, yeah. It's just, I yeah. think... actualizing that.
1: Yeah.
2: And as a stencil, she's transposable. She could be
1: at posing. Exactly. It's, it's it's really showing us how much of a, a tool it is, yeah. not a real person.
2: I think our next image is controversial, interestingly controversial.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so this was a slide that I chose just to show how way back when, even in this is is the later Bernini version of an original Hellenistic sculpture known as the Sleeping Hermaphroditus. And what I wanted to focus on was how this reclining nude woman was as much of an icon even then because it's one that's been manipulated in this case. But I sort of feel I should pass over to Mary to talk about the <laughs> classical sculpture.
3: Well, it's, it's, it makes a great pair with the Graverol, because yeah. this yeah. is what Gravarell's got in mind. And it, this itself is a kind of wonderful composite because the actual figure is Greek original, probably second century with, a, with some Bernini additions. The mattress is entirely Bernini. But it's, I think it makes a wonderful kind of pair for lots of reasons with the gravarole, because whoever did that original nude, almost nude figure, which is the centrepiece, is already playing with our expectations, because we're seeing it here from the same vista as we see the gravel, and we think... But the, the complexity is different, because what every visitor to this sculpture in the Louvre knows is that this looks from the back as if it is a classic woman constructed by male artist to satisfy male gaze. You also know that if you walk round it to the other side, you find that she's not a woman at all, or at least she's only partly a woman. She has breasts, but she also has male genitals.
2: So that's a real reveal, isn't it? Where it you is around?
3: a it <laughs> is a fantastic. It's worth doing in the loop. <laughs> you see, some people some people know what they're going to get on the other side. Yep. Other people think, ah, hang on a minute. <laughs> and I think it's a very interesting piece, particularly within current debates, because I mean I think it's a reminder that back in the third century BC. There were issues about -hmm. about gender identity, how fluid it was. That sculpture only makes sense if it's put in the context of people starting or maybe going on asking the question of what's a woman and what's a man. If it's a joke, as I was, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I was taught it was a bit of a joke. You know, if it's a joke, it's a extremely expensive joke um, made even more expensive by Bernini Um, and you what you do is you see you see that gender is being challenged and so even within what looks like the most classic standard image of the woman it's kind of undermined you can't ever you know they're already saying you can't
2: take this at face value
1: we're still talking about that, though, being debated by men, right? It's still a presumed <laughs> male viewer.
2: Does uh, that change things? Do you think that we're more sympathetic if we think of a female viewer?
1: It's um, whose desire,
2: I guess, we're thinking about.
1: Yeah, I think I, akin to what Mary was saying, have, have studied it in the, in the form of it being a bit of a joke. Yeah. Um, and the joke is kind of on the male viewer for having po- possibly felt a bit of lust about yes. this sculpture. That's a school
2: joke, yeah. And yeah.
1: then getting the surprise and thinking, oh, yeah. my darn lust. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a sort yeah. of heteronormative form of entertainment. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And that's, that's very clear in some of the ancient paintings on the same theme, mm. where you have what looks like the beautiful woman lying in the countryside under a rock and a goatee pan-like figure is coming up. Yeah. Uh, and is going to rape her actually and then he you see him in the act of removing her veil as yes. it were and seeing what she is and so it it's it's partly a joke on the male gaze. Mm. You know, you can't actually you, know, you can't believe your eyes, but it's also at the same time a problem about what gender is.
2: Is the question more clear clut with this, beloved? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the the Rokeby Venus, so um, very well-known painting in the National Gallery. Again, we're, we're seeing that same trope again of the recumbent nude woman from the same angle, actually, as yeah. the sleeping Hermaphrodite, um, with her beautiful sinuous form. And this actually, it has a very interesting history. It was um, famously uh, slashed by a, a suffragette. Who attacked it with a knife, and it's been perfectly restored. And there's no indication of that in the plaque next to it in the National Gallery. But the suffragette speaks about it really eloquently and says how she had decided to destroy the most beautiful figure in history in retaliation against the government, destroying the most beautiful character in history, Emmeline Pankhurst, mm. um, who'd just been incarcerated. So I mean that, as an anecdote, underscores kind of the icon that is this reclining nude woman, because that is—it's an act of iconoclasm. Yes. Um, but
3: I was always taught that wrongly. I was taught the story um, as if it was she was objecting to the display of female flesh. I was oh. taught it. I was taught it in a kind of 1960s feminist version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in fact, when I went back, it's exactly as you say. She's she's objecting to the valuation
1: exactly. the topic of the figure. Exactly. Yeah. What? Yeah, no, exactly. And that tradition of locating women's value in their sex appeal.
2: Yeah. What do we make of her gazing at her
3: own? That's
1: what I think is really interesting, isn't yes. it? Look, you know, who's looking at who and what
3: mm. bits are we looking at? And all you see is her face in the mirror. But you do see the face.
1: Do you think there's also a dimension though, again, a bit like with the sleeping hermaphrodite, there's a kind of looking at this through a male lens as yes incredibly sexy the embodiment i mean this is venus the embodiment of the hyper idealized vision of love sex lust um but there's vanity and there's a kind of ability to slightly deride her for that as well
3: yeah yeah with her little son cupid with her little yeah. son cupid yeah
2: <laughs> hold the mirror up
3: <laughs> what a boys for
2: and we're back to the gravel which is in the sale
1: we should say which is in the sale yes it's for sale so yeah just bringing it back to the concept of power what I love about this painting specifically is how Jane Gravel is using these symbols that have previously been deployed to disempower women Mm -hmm. to make us think about them in in a new way and there's kind of I think there's a valuable lesson there in not ignoring history the baggage that is history but engaging with it and reframing it
2: the subversive quality that we've been talking about in the gravel, in the sleeping hermaphrodite, certainly, that is not just a modern phenomenon, Mary. We also see it in some of the works you're about to talk about now.
3: It's easy to be
2: too simple about um,
3: the disempowerment of women in art. I mean, I think it's, it's a very important bedrock of it, how women have been represented, but it's always being subverted. And I, I feel that very strongly about the Artemisia Gentileschi, Susanna and the elders on the left, where these two ghastly men um, in the biblical story threatening that they're looking at her, they're ogling her, and they are about to try to set her up by threatening to say that they've found her committing adultery unless she sleeps with them. And the upshot of the story in the book of Daniel is that Daniel heroically makes it very clear that their story is, a, is, is cooked up. And here is a very famous painting because one of the most important issues in the story, in the story of Artemisia's own life story uh, is that she was raped. And I think her painting of a woman being threatened in this way has always always been difficult to know how how to read it but one of the ways of reading it is that this painting actually turns the victim into victor actually those guys don't get away artemisia's rapist sort of did Mm. but artemisia manages actually to use paint and to use the story of susanna and the elders which she does several times to in a sense, claim some women's language here in relation to the, the scene of harassment and rape. Is that how? Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not that we want to reduce Gentileschi to her own biography, but I do think there is at the heart of what she does. I mean, I think there's some. It's ninety-five or ninety-four percent of the paintings that we have mm-hmm. left by her depict female protagonists. They are the agents yeah. of her paintings, and. It's worth remembering that after she was raped, the veracity of her testimony um, was questioned to yes. such a degree that they tortured her um, to test if she was really going to stay true to her word. Um, so there's this extraordinary, traumatic, underlying subtext to these paintings that I, like I say, you, you can separate biography from artists, but it, it, I think, adds to the it underpins the potency of of then looking at these images again.
2: Yeah, mm. it's such a loaded image, isn't it? Yeah. You understand that context. Yeah. And of course the story goes on beyond the image that we see mm. there too. What about Kimono and Peri?
3: I, I only chose this because I'd like some help. <laughs> <laughs> um, and somebody might be able to help. What you've got on the right-hand side is one of the most famous themes in paintings in the 17th and 18th century. The daughter who comes to the prison where her father is in incarceration, uh, starving, and she feeds him from her own breast. And it is now, I think, a a painting that it's almost impossible to get our heads round. Really, really difficult. I mean, we can manage, you know, in a a strange way, we can manage Mm. the, the Artemisia. The painting on the right, you barely see them now in in galleries, because they're in the stores, because nobody really wants to look at it. You go to, as I recently did, I went walk past the outside of the jail in Ghent, and there is a vast sculpture of that particular scene outside the jail. Right? <laughs> now, I simply—it's a kind of just a good example of how we haven't got this problem sussed, really—that oh. there are there are paintings and images about women's power or lack of power, and it's not quite clear which that is, that still, I mean, elude our ability to process them. Mm. And I think that's made particularly clear in that one because you can hardly see it on the screen, but just on the top left-hand side of the painting, there's a man looking in, presumably the jailer, is looking in, so there's a voyeur as well. So you have a kind of sexualized image, an image which was frequently referred to as absolute filial piety. It, was, it went under the name Roman charity as a shorthand. This was, this was what a girl should do for her dad. It was a heroic act. And yet, I find them almost impossible to look at. And I don't know how to evaluate the role of the woman there. She looks partly... Uncertain, she's looking over her shoulder as if it's. She knows someone's watching her. But I think they're very, very difficult. And I think we always, you know, when when being very simple mm. about the power or powerlessness of women in all this, I think we've got to remember that you can't always read these things very simply. Even go back a few hundred years. There's something really complicated going on here, and I just don't know what it is.
2: It's really challenging, isn't it? <laughs> Answers on a postcard, if you have them. We're moving on now to back to you, Holly.
1: So it struck me, actually, how um, of all of the sort of modern pictures that I've chosen to show on the slides, I've pretty much always <laughs> cited a classical Hellenistic <laughs> reference, which does speak to my education. But I think also it, it flags how much antiquity continues to yeah. sort of contour our, our visual values. Um, so on the left uh, is an etching by the German artist Katakolwitz. And there was a phenomenal exhibition at the RA recently called Making Modernism, and I, I mean, I, it was about, uh, it was focused on a group of women artists um, at the turn of the century, and I hope some of you went to go and see it. I, I left it just sort of wrought. Um, I wasn't able to keep my art historical cap on. I left having experienced such a kind of visceral response to these images and immediately texted my mother and sister telling them they had to go. And Katja was the, the, the standout artist for me. I mean, bearing in mind in terms of the context for modern art, what's often cited as the advent of modern art is Manet's Luncheon on the Grass. And that what was so sort of um, groundbreaking about that was that it depicted a, in inverted commas again, real nude woman i.e. not a goddess. Uh, It wasn't part of mythology or allegory. This was a woman in a contemporary context with clothed contemporary men. And so we're looking at the language of the advent of the avant-garde centered on a real nude woman. So it does flag up this interesting question for women artists at the time, how do they harness the language of modern art without perhaps deploying the iconography that has been used to disempower women and Katakovitz has a lot of nude women in her output but she does she locates it in a very very specific female world which is flagging the corporeal and emotional realities of being a woman and often a, a mother as well and in this case on the left the image you've got this mother being pulled on, on the one hand by a skeleton, the embodiment of death, and on the other, um, a child. Um, and she's strong, she's like a strong woman, but these are, she's being pulled by these earthbound um, drawers on her. And the image that I've chosen to contrast it with is the Lawaka one. Um, which again, I feel Mary should perhaps talk about more. <laughs> but um, this, um, I, I learned about this image when I was studying classics, and it's the story of the Trojan um, priest who um, warned the Greeks, warned the Trojans, sorry, not to take in the horse. Um, and he was punished for his um, prescient warning by uh, the gods, and a sea serpent was sent to attack him and his children. And this is really considered the sort of prototypical image of suffering in Western art. And certainly when I learned about it, we focused on uh, the children who were essentially kind of miniaturized adults. You can't really tell that they're children. And obviously, Greek sculptors had the skill to depict children. So there's a conscious choice there in kind of shrinking the children to be miniature adults. The idea being that, you know, in facing trauma, there's a sort of premature engagement with with growing up. But on the left, if we go back to the Katakolwitz, the the child is very real in the Katakolwitz. And I mm-hmm. think they bear really close comparison in the geometry of them, the fact that you've got the dependents. Yep. Um, and it's, I think it's highly plausible that Katakolwitz did know the law, and she unusually, for women of the day, yeah. did have formal training in art. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and, and what she's done, I think, is even bolder than it looks now, because the lower corn is not just an amazing ancient sculpture With ended up in the Vatican as, in a sense, kind of the, the touchstone of what ancient art was all about. By the time you get to the 18th century, it's also, it kickstarts a whole study of art history, really, in aesthetics, mm-hmm. because people are beginning to say, in what sense can the viewer take pleasure in the scene of the man and his kids horribly put to death. What is it about art that enables us to look at that scene with pleasure? So what Katakolwitz has done is not just taken over a famous sculpture in order to make her image. What she's done is, she's actually appropriated the wellsprings of the whole study of aesthetics and art history. I mean, it's really brave, you know, it's an absolute up yours to male art <laughs> um, it, image there. In a way that I think that if you saw it without the Laocorn, or without knowing about the Laocorn, you wouldn't know quite how extraordinarily up yours it was.
2: It's so illuminating to see them together like that. Thank you, Holly.
4: Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit, or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025,1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/squared.
2: We're moving into the 20th century with female artists who begin to portray women through their own lens, disrupting the male gaze. And this is a painting by Marie Laurencin. And I have to say, it's the most covetable image in the sale, I've been longing, longingly looking at it. Tell us a bit more about
1: it. Oh, I'm so, so glad you like it, <laughs> I, I absolutely love it as well. Uh, so yes, this is in the sale by Marie Laurencin. And I think what is interesting about Marie Laurencin is that she was the sort of the, the face of the acceptable woman artist at the time. We're talking early 20th century. And she talks about how she feels uncomfortable among her peers, fellow male artists, because of their genius. And so she will just stick to the feminine and everything feminine because it's all she knows. And and it's worth bearing in mind that we do talk about Painting being limited to members. It's not true at large that so professional painting was, but painting in and of itself was part of the sort of roster of accomplishments for women. If you think about Jane Austen, Lizzie Bennett is expected to be able to paint a bit and play a bit of piano and speak a bit of French. And, you know, it's the full complement of upper class womanly attributes. Um, and Mary Lorisar leans into that. And of course, you can take her comments at face value, but I do think this painting demonstrates precisely why you shouldn't. I mean, she's got everything wonderful and ladylike and feminine there. It's the lovely rococo dress, the beautiful pastel palette, the pearls, symbol of virginity, replete with bows. But the breasts are out. <laughs> and that wasn't OK uh, for the lady amateur artist. <laughs> um, and I think we do, there is a provocation here, dressed up as something lyrical and beautiful and safe. and. Actually, so when I showed this image first to Mary, she commented on the, the crossed arms yeah. um, and also the crossed legs. And on the next slide, we have the Venus of canidus which is kind of the originator of this idea of you know, drawing attention to the very place these yeah. subjects were ostensibly trying to cover.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, so this is, in a way that I think it's very hard for us to recap to now, this is a totally shocking image. Is supposedly a copy of the first ever female full sized Greek nude, middle of the fourth century BC. And it's, it now looks like every other nude we've always ever seen and walked past, usually. Oh, you know, and there's yeah. hundreds of them. But at the time, this was you know, a, an image which in a sense I think makes a nice reading with the Laurent Saint, because it was absolutely Well, shocking. The first people the sculptor offered this to, the city said, no, thank you. You know, we're not having that. And it became not only a huge tourist attraction, but I think this also really fits with the Laurentin. It became infamous because what it did to people. There was um, one very, very famous story, which I shall bowdlerise slightly, (laughs) where it, during the night, a young man in love with it for weeks and weeks and weeks lusted after it, got locked up with it at night in its temple, and made love to it from behind.
2: Oh God! And you can tell that <laughs> you can tell that he
3: did. Because his mark is still left stain. <laughs> oh. right? And that was the, the ancient tourist spiel. Of I think
2: they've got much better security at some
0: point. Don't worry.
3: <laughs> don't worry. Um, you know, and the, the, the custodian of the temple got a lot and said, Do you know what that is? Well, let me tell you. Right? <laughs> um, but the end of the story was the guy went mad and killed himself by throwing himself off a cliff. So, you know, actually, I mean, it's, it is quite hard to take it entirely seriously, I agree. <laughs> but for me, it captures that sense of, you know, mm. this is a sculpture that makes you do, that sends man, you know, this is like Medusa, it sends people not to stone, sends men mad. It's
1: the power of imagery. It's the
3: power of imagery. And so when you then, someone like Roloresan, taking that image. No, she's not stupid, she knows a lot about this sculpture. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so she's underlining the fact that what she's making is a potentially dangerous image.
1: Really. And also, th- th- this image is laden with ideas about body shame as, as well. It's, yeah. She's surprised, she's grabbing for her towel and she's covering herself up. And you know, in the foundational images of nude women, yeah. We have concept of body shame, yes. um, yeah. which, which you don't get with the nude men. They, these guys,
3: these women, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's as if they, the, the artist always has to provide an excuse for why he's allowed to show them. And uh, so here, oh, we've just, we've just come across her. Oh, she's getting in or out of the yeah. bar. Yeah. Right? And there were, there were loads of poems written in antiquity about how come that Praxiteles ever saw me, says the imaginary goddess Venus, how come he ever saw me with no clothes on? Right? And the idea that th- there's a really dangerous encounter here rather than the absolutely what we now call the heroic nudity yeah. of any number of nude statues of men. These are always awkward, and I think it's, you know, one of the biggest tragedies of actually Western art history is the way we've come to take these for granted instead of seeing them as really edgy, shocking, shocking, edgy, difficult pieces. Uh,
2: This is Kiki Smith's Lilith, (laughs) Mary.
3: Uh, Yeah, this is kind of one of my favourite, utterly wicked, but just a personal choice in here. But this is bronze statue of Lilith. Lilith being the Jewish um, mythological um, devil, she, really, yes. the, she devil, uh, often thought of as being the first wife of Adam before. Eve. I mean she she does all the things that she devils always do like eat children and um, (laughs) all the you know you name it. Um, She was reputed in one version of the the myth to always insist on making love to Adam on top which was (laughs) in order to (laughs) show him who the boss was. (laughs) Um, And here uh, she's being reproduced, literally hanging on the wall upside down by the American sculptor uh, Kiki Smith. What I think is interesting in relation to the tradition, like of the Venus of that we've just seen, is that first of all the body is cast from that of a real woman, Ooh. so that insofar as we always look at these Venus-style nudes and in a sense, say, that isn't a real woman. This is kind of blazoning its credentials to be a real woman. And she's got amazing, of course, you can't see them, she's got amazing blue, shiny eyes. But because of the way she's magically hanging onto the wall, you can't ever really quite look at her. She's looking at you, you can't quite look at her. And although she's naked, you can't see what you can normally see in a nude statue. Um, So you don't see, even the covered genitalia, you don't see the breasts. So again, it seems to me it's a a case where the sculptor has taken the tradition of the female nude and in absolutely crucial ways, utterly undermined it. Because there can't be a male gaze here. The, The male gaze can't see what the male gaze wants to see. And she's real and she's magical, and she's hanging on the wall.
2: That's right. remarkable.
3: <laughs> In a way that you'd love to be able to do that
2: <laughs> No, um, this is a fascinating painting.
1: Oh, yeah. This is this is one of my uh, favourites by Leonor Finney, who actually described herself as a, a modern Lilith. Yes, it's yeah. brilliant. Um, I don't really know where, where to, to begin. begin. <laughs> uh, so she is a celebrated female surrealist artist, and specifically is one of the artists who I think would have railed against the identification as a woman artist much like the debates with athletes now they want to be recognized as the best athlete not just the best woman athlete and it's very much an identification that she railed against but perhaps as a successful woman it's just a cross she has to bear for us and this is a self-portrait and this introduces ideas specifically about fertility you've got the cracked egg obviously in the foreground you've got the breasts on show and when looking back through art historical representation you have you have canons for women as we've seen right back to the classical period Um, and one of those canons was the mother maternity Um, specifically the Madonna Mother Mary who not only is is a mother is a virgin talking about unrealistic standards for women <laughs> um, and Leonor Finney is engaging with that theme about what happens when you, when you go outside of those canons. And obviously her hair is very unkempt, alluding to the characterizations of Medusa. Mm. And you've got the skulls floating around, which she'd explained as the skulls of the men around her who were too limited in their understanding. So she's specifically engaging with what happens when we question those foundational images of women. And I, I just think it's one of the most powerful images i Love it so much. What do you much. make of that expression? Enigmatic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, and, and obviously, the jewel, the jewel vision adds another, another element to it. It's yes. again, it, it's the politics of the gaze who is yeah. looking, who's allowed to look, who yeah. should be looked at. She's double looking back at us.
2: We've been looking at um, women portrayed by women through their own lens. Let's now have a look at how powerful women have been represented in Western culture in general, and the kinds of symbols that these artists might use to express women's power. The first one is one that many of us will know, Mary. It's uh,
3: Elizabeth I's Armada uh, portrait, and one of several uh, uh, taking the same theme as the the victory of the Spanish Armada. For me, what this does is, in a sense, it goes back to the to the question of how you represent a woman that's that's power, because, in a sense, we've lost the real person here. We don't know where the real body is. We see her head and we see her hands, but otherwise, it is female power represented by excess of fabric uh, and jewels, and in this case, pearls, pearls being the classical symbol of virginity. So it's almost as if she's a kind of a mannequin of power rather than a queen. I don't see a queen. I see a, a model of what power might be if you tried to represent it in female dress. Yeah. I find them quite sort of unpleasant images mm. for, Well, she looks uncomfortable, that incredibly, You couldn't possibly be comfortable (laughs) enough, could you?
1: Yeah. We have Andy (laughs) Wifelnick. Yes. I think that this is just an interesting point of comparison in terms of how the representation of of power, specifically a woman monarch, has changed. Because in contrast to the previous portrait, the Queen didn't sit for Warhol. This is not a portrait that she had control over. Yes. And so it's introducing a, a really interesting new dimension about, about the power of the image, I suppose, and who has power over their own image. Um, and, and it ties very much into Warhol's obsessions with culture and celebrity. And he once said that he wanted to be as famous as the Queen and sees her as this cultural icon. And he is as famous as the Queen. Um, and I don't, know, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I have wondered whether the proliferation of this image and by its nature as being a print and it could be reproduced, etc., which is specifically what he wanted to do, whether that accessibility has diminished the Queen's power or enhanced it yeah. and I, I, don't, I don't really know I could see there'd be arguments for both
2: The next we have these two portraits by Paul S. Benny um, they're of Baroness Amos and Lord Sainsbury. Mary why did you want us to look closer at these portraits? Well I think that the, the kinds of issues that we've been talking about
3: they go right through to modern portraits modern images of modern people in Power or, or celebrities. And again, what I felt here was the way that the portrait of Valerie Amos often looked at, on in terms of a, you know, a kind of outsider's portrait. You know, this was one of the very first portraits in the House of Lords of a black peer. And it, it's kind of seen in those terms. But I think when you compare it with poor old Lord Sainsbury. There is absolutely no question here that, that, his, that Benny's version of Amos really wins out. There is a woman who's turned her kenti cloth into, in the House of Lords, everybody's wearing silly old ermine, yeah. um, into a, an image of her own particular power, identity and symbolism. it's going back a bit to the Emperor Claudius with Lord Sainsbury, I'm afraid, that um, that in the end we think of, you know, I live in a university which is full of pictures of men in ermine or men in suits. And they do define, in a way, our vision of power. But when you put those two together, you know, you can see that in some ways, I'd like to think that men are sort of a bit let down by that standard (laughs) image you know that's all they can be you know (laughs) a man in power can only be that so you know feminist that I am I think there is a reason for seeing that some of these things get much more complicatedly turned turned over and you know Sainsbury needs a bit of kenti cloth and some yellow in the
2: background
3: (laughs) (laughs) well tell us about this Mary
2: what's going on here
3: I mean, again,
1: I've got some of my favourite images here. Does <laughs> 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 oh, Holly want to talk about these images? It? Wait, it, was, yeah. it was Mary's I- I- image. Um, I,
3: will, <laughs> I will say why I chose it, and then <laughs> I think here, in a sense, this is ring composition. We've come back to the very beginning about, but ultimately, whatever you can do, if you're Benny and you can take Valerie Amos and all the complexity, ultimately, the kind of cliche of woman in power image is that just like Athena women in power have a uniform they have a uniform and it's as close to being a man as you could possibly get Um, I mean I'm sure it's very sensible outfit right (laughs) if you're kind of you know hopping off planes and, and there's all sorts of female politicians who claim that if you Try to go on a stage in a skirt. You yeah. miss being upskirted and all around. I'm so, sure it's hugely sensible, but most of all, it's turning you into a
1: bloke. I almost wore my suit today, and I knew you were going to make this point, so I didn't. Um, but I, I, I do, I do have a suit um, on a personal note, and I definitely, I, there, I, I wear it very, very consciously. I, there are yeah. there are moments in time when I know I need to bring out the suit, and not the fuchsia leotard or, or whatever <laughs> and it's because not to say that there aren't suits which are incredibly feminine and uh-huh. certainly suits that that men couldn't wear but there's no getting around the fact that for centuries it's been the uniform of the professional man and it's therefore is codified and I, I mean I don't know what it says about me but I, I know that I do lean into it when I want to be in an atmosphere where I have to I don't know, impart a certain degree of confidence or professional status, I'd bring out the suit. Yeah. Well,
2: why would I would have I great faith I don't
1: own one. I'm I don't own oh, one. Oh, wow. You've always got a round of applause there.
2: <laughs> I think we're coming up to our last few images.
3: Oh, I just put, I put this one in too. Because it's, it's really, it's, this is outside Cambridge train station. Um, this is new, isn't it? And it's very new that um, Gavin Turk, the sculptor, noticed, as you can see, the arcade of Cambridge train Station, very like some of the arcades you see in De Chirico. And he, he took one of the images of the sleeping Ariadne in De Chirico and covered it up and put, uh, and put sculpted chains around it and put it outside the Cambridge Station. This has been hugely, hugely controversial um, in a way which I think is just, in a sense, reassuring about how these images still mean Mm. because there are some people who come along and say you get out of Cambridge Station and you see a woman tied up right? (laughs) You know, is that the way to welcome you to Cambridge? And there are others of us who say, look actually this image of a kind of concealed dichirico ariadne is teaching us to look at Cambridge train station in a different way. It's it's enriching with the reception of the classical tradition, this monument. And you can imagine the letters in the Cambridge News (laughs) on both sides, but it's, whichever whichever way you come down, I think it's saying that these ultimately classical uh, ways of representing the woman still actually work in getting people talking and discussing. I rather like it, but not sure that its days might
1: be numbered. No, it, also sort of, it almost brings us back full circle, because it is a, a reclining woman, um, is. Um, yeah. but reframed. Yeah. And
2: well, should we turn to our <laughs> semi-reclining audience? Um, do you have questions? I think we've got a tiny bit of time to squeeze in maybe one or two questions. If you do, wave, and we'll have the roving mic come to you. There's one on the end. Let's get that first, and then we'll come <laughs> to the Thank yeah. you. We'll you have to put up with all this. Thank you. <laughs> Isn't, uh, I don't know, as a feminist, don't you think that the ultimate goal eventually should be that there is no differentiation between sexes? It's probably a very broad question, but some of the points you made made me wonder that, or are we always about celebrating the difference and... Um, Yes, enabling our power, so to speak. So the question for people who didn't hear was, uh, should the ultimate goal be that there should be no differentiation between men and women in our understanding of our history?
3: I don't know. I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. And I, I think I would want to answer it in terms of you know, some of the, you know, the big current debates that we're having, which I think are, are about more than they necessarily appear to be and what they're about is is there a difference between men and women you know that's the big question um that's the question that the hermaphrodite is partly raising i think uh, can i say on the hermaphrodite that was a Bernini hermaphrodite. Mm, yeah. And I thought it was the Louvre hermaphrodite. Please, before you write in, everybody, <laughs> um, the, the Louvre hermaphrodite is almost identical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I haven't got my glasses on, but it didn't look the right shape to me from here. Um, um, that's the question, isn't it? It's, and and do, do we want a world in which there's a spectrum, in which there's no difference? Mm-hmm. How do we think that the history of gender difference, which has been hugely productive in all kinds of ways, often to the disadvantage of women, Mm -hmm. but also in terms of a cultural binary, has been productive. How do we move forward from that? And I wish I knew the answer. I think we've got to, but I don't know how.
1: Yeah, I I think for me, there's been so much history and there's so much baggage that you kind of need to work through first.
2: (laughs) And it's so illuminating listening to you attend to women in this way as well, I think. There is some reward there. The question from the gentleman.
0: First of all, thank you for Professor Beard. I just wanted to say, uh, in speaking of representations of power for women, I really love your socks.
2: <laughs> 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 I them.
0: Yeah,
3: the, <laughs> oh, the Mona Lisa. I put them on specially. I don't have a suit, I've got, some, I've got some Mona Lisa socks. <laughs>
4: Really, my, my question—what well, besides where could I get one? <laughs> my question was: I was curious if you'd
3: seen the film *Tar*. I'm about to watch it on Curzon Home Cinema <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I've read about it um, but I've never, I haven't seen it I
4: would just have been curious to hear your, your thoughts on how that no. fits into representation so,
2: no. so this, no. is, this is a film about a female I'll conductor of a major European orchestra who is accused of sexual harassment yeah. starring Kate Blanchett who's about to win lots of awards for. Yeah. Yeah. and that's of
3: course why I want to watch it because I think it, it, it clearly does fit and, and I think that I mean, I think what's interesting is that that I certainly, you know, because of where I come from in terms of discipline, I tend to think about this in terms of non-moving images, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about it in terms of sculpture, painting and photography. Uh, you know, I think inevitably, though, one's informed now by by film and so... there's there's something a little bit artificial
2: about bracketing off non-moving images although it's something that I'm afraid I always do. It's a remarkable film if you've not seen it but controversial too because of the resemblances to Marion Allsop who's complained about it too. Um, Are there questions? One more question?
0: Um, So as women in power essentially yourselves
3: do you think that there's an argument for using these quite typically misogynistic ideas of, you know, portrayals of women such as Medusa in a way that you can sort of turn that into some sort of agency for yourselves being these are women who are feared and there's a certain power in that too. Well, that's certainly true of Medusa where there's quite a good feminist history of of thinking about that as power. And where, you know, uh, Natalie Haynes' recent book, Stone, or it called Stone, is, yeah. is partly within that tradition. I, I think that's true. With Medusa, I find that I'm, I find it quite hard to do that. You know, partly because I come to her through largely the written versions of the myth. And the thing that always sticks in my head is why, why she got snaky locks? Answer is, she was once really beautiful, but she was then raped by a god in the temple of another. And to punish her for being raped, she was turned into a monster who turns everybody to stone. And somehow, after all my kind of stuff about how there's loads and loads of really interesting challenges to this, these gender stereotypes within ancient culture, in the end, it's still a culture where who gets punished for the rape? The woman. Mm. And Medusa forever stands out um, yeah. as that for me.
2: And it's exhausting, I think, always having to subvert the positions that you're oh, It's, it's to like... fun, though. Yeah. It is fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it takes some energy, I think. It's easier than being Lord Sainsbury. <laughs>
1: it's easier to be Valerie Amos than Lord Sainsbury. Holly. Oh, um, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, there's a quote I read, um, which has always stuck with me, that it's really hard to disagree without being disagreeable. Mm. And just speaking on a personal note, I think it is kind of even harder for women. And as we've seen in so many of the demonized characterizations of women in power, you know, it's kind of entrenched in our cultural unconscious and DNA to be a bit submissive. And I find myself, virtually on a daily basis, where I have to object not to feel like I'm personally being objectionable. And I, I, I don't know what the answer is, um, but o- on a personal note, I think it is, it is very, very difficult. <laughs> I don't have nearly as much power as Mary or Sharda. <laughs> <laughs> I'll learn from them.
2: Can I say that you've been such agreeable company today? <laughs> Thank you, Mary and Holly. I know that our audience will be thinking as I am that it's such a treat to spend a Sunday morning, afternoon with you. Um, So let me say that on their behalf too. Thank you also to Intelligence Squared for organising the talk. And of course, Sotheby's for hosting it. Now the very last word goes to Holly, who will be giving us the inside track on what's going on in the galleries here at Sotheby's. Yes,
1: sadly, that's my cue to wrap this up. (laughs) Thank you so much everyone for coming. If you haven't had a chance to look around the galleries yet, please. Do we're open on both floors? Everything is for sale, Um, and they (laughs) Uh, are—they are um, all being presented in our modern and contemporary uh, sale series on the first and the second of March. Thank Thank you.